Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a great show for you this evening. I am here with the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, for our annual show where we get information about what's going on, some background, uh, all, all the great stories of NORAD, and of course, cover at the end their Santa Tracker and the wonderful work that they do in outreach with that as well. Before we begin, a couple of quick uh, housekeeping notes. First of all, our Fly to Win Challenge is continuing right now. Be sure to get the uh, Social Flight app for your mobile device, either Apple or Android, and uh, just check in at any airport. It can be your home airport, and you will be entered in the Fly to Win Challenge. If you continue to get collect points at different uh, airports and wind up on uh, the uh, our leader list in the top 30, then you get multiple entries, helps increase your chances of winning and our prize is a lightspeed zulu 3 headset which is uh, absolutely wonderful so be sure to check that out and tonight's show is brought to you by lightspeed aviation and their brand new delta zulu headset and something i would just like to pass along is that we just put the bonanza into annual inspection and in doing the pre-flight uh, testing that uh, um, we did before going into annual, and uh, we happened to have a, a demo of the uh, uh, Delta Zulu headset, it actually started alerting us to carbon monoxide in the cockpit. And that uh, was able to be traced back to a leaking muffler that we uh, discovered as we took everything apart for the annual. So uh, go check out the Delta Zulu headset. It is remarkable in terms of its abilities to help uh, protect you with wearable safety technology. Um, it's, uh, it, it was really something worth checking out. In addition, one more thing that I just want to say, we for the uh, month of December here, we have our promotion for Social Flight Wear. Uh, we have our Social Flight Mustang Globe, which you can see here. Um, it's a really uh, fun uh, and great ornament for your, your desk or your office or anywhere in your home. Uh, and we do this to support social flight. It's uh, just over $99 delivered to your door. Uh, all you have to do is send an email to info, info, I-N-F-O, at socialflight.com. That's info at socialflight.com. And I'll send you a link. You can uh, get one of the last ones that we have of these before we uh, run out for our promotion. And uh, it's just a great way to help support social flight and uh, keep all of this going for all of you, which is what we're here for. Now, I'd like to introduce tonight's guest. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, is a bi-national United States and Canadian organization charged with the missions of aerospace warning and aerospace control for North America. Stephen Stretch Armstrong, our guest this evening, is NORAD's Commander's Chief. NORAD's strategic engagement serving as the premier subject matter expert and strategic engagement lead on NORAD and Operation Noble Eagle. Mr. Armstrong is a pilot and former F-16 and T-37 instructor. He also served as operations group commander and air support 
commander and the inspector general for NORAD and the United States Northern Command. His major awards and decorations include the Defense Superior Service Medal, Legion of Merit, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, Air Force Commendation Medal, and numerous other campaign and service medals. I'm going to bring Stretch on the line now to join us. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Stretch Armstrong. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, great to have uh, to be with you tonight. Looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So thank you for your service and, and, and for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. So um, tell us a little bit about your background because uh, it's, it's wonderful to have this opportunity. We do this uh, show every year. This is the first time that we've uh, been uh, so fortunate to get uh, a pilot. You were in the uh, Air Force uh, and it, I think, provides a very unique in, uh, perspective on our background and uh, for uh, tonight's show. So, so tell me a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to be sitting where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So to start off, my dad was a fighter pilot for 32 years, so I kind of had that in my blood. Uh, I got into the Air Force in 1981, and my very first F-16 assignment, believe it or not, was over in Madrid, Spain. We had a base over there called Torrejón in Madrid, Spain, spent three years over there. Most of the time I was deployed from that, but spent a whole bunch of time in the F-16 over the next 30 years or so. Got here on uh, right after going to Naval War College in 1999. I showed up at NORAD the first time I was assigned here, and I was the chief of plans and forces. So on 9-11, when that event occurred, Two days later, I was whisked off to Washington, D.C., where I spent the next two and a half months, and I actually wrote Operation Nova Legal. So I've been doing it and had exposure to it for since its inception. Um, and now, one of the things I do, as you mentioned, I'm the Chief of Strategic Engagement for NORAD. I'm also the Vice Director for NORAD Operations, and I wear a third hat um, where I actually teach all of our civilian aircraft engagement authorities how to be a civilian aircraft engagement authority, i.e. The, the scenario where we have a 9-11 type event and we got to the point where we actually had to engage a civilian aircraft. I teach all these general officers how to do that mission. So hmm. that kind of gets us to where I'm at now. Again, I've been doing this particular job for about 13 years. So in this capacity, I've been doing that for quite a while, actually. Yeah, that's that's really impressive. And and I want to take you back for a minute there, though, before we completely leave it. I have been told by anyone who was an F-16 pilot that 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 is just the most kind of wearable airplane. Anyone who's flown the F-16 seems to just rave about it more than any any other aircraft that that they've flown. Yeah. I tell you what, Jeff. You know the airplane is wonderful. I've got about three thousand hours in it, and it literally fits you like a glove. I'm six two, so kind of a a taller kind of guy, but I put the seat all the way down and jump in that thing, and it's like it just envelops you, and you fit like a glove in there. It's really, really mechanized for a fighter pilot, so it's very easy to fly and very forgiving. Uh, great airplane overall. What was it like also teaching in the T-37? That's the, the Talon, correct? Uh, no, that was the T-38, actually. The T-37, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, was the first one, side-by-side -side seating. It was a little Cessna T-37. 
Oh, okay. I spent doing that for about three years at Del Rio, Texas, down in Laughlin. And that was interesting, taking guys literally right off the streets and their first exposure, some of them, to fly in pseudo high-performance airplanes, T-37 jet engines and all that kind of stuff. But it really wasn't much of a super performer, but it was a jet aircraft. Uh, and taking a guy off the street and being able to put him in a jet for the first time was pretty exciting, actually. That's the loud one, right? <laughs> very, very loud one, like a dog whistle. <laughs> the tweet, yes, okay. <laughs> so uh, take us through a little bit about the the background, I think, uh, of, of NORAD and the mission of NORAD as a whole, and then we'll get uh, along to uh, Operation uh, Noble Eagle. The, uh, I think the average person who doesn't know much about it does know the word NORAD, right? And when they when they think of that, they usually think of Cheyenne Mountain and kind of strategic command. Um, yeah. t- tell me a little bit about how that started and wh- where that's evolved. Yeah, so Cheyenne Mountain is still alive and well. In fact, we, uh, we um, work out of there on a regular basis, but much of what we do on a day-to-day basis now is actually down here at Peterson Space Force Base. We do have the ability to, when we do continuity of operations, we'll go up there and do our mission from there. And it's a great place to do that from. But as you said in kind of your opening there, uh, NORAD has a couple of missions. Uh, Aerospace warning, aerospace control. The one you didn't mention is actually maritime warning. Uh, We won't necessarily talk about that much, but let me talk to you a little bit about about, uh, aerospace warning. Uh, A lot of folks just equate NORAD to the fact that we have fighters on alert and can respond to incursions into the air defense identification zone and those kind of things. But under the umbrella of aerospace warning, we're also responsible for this thing called integrated tactical warning and attack assessment. And what that's really all about is anything that launches in the space domain, we have overhead sensors and satellites that are able to protect that and give us an idea where we think that um, space launch may be going. And we need to make an assessment whether there's going to be an attack on North America with that space launch. So that's one of our bread and butter missions as well uh, to Operation Noble Eagle. Operation Noble Eagle is, like I said, with the fighters on alert and tankers. We actually have tankers on alert to support those missions. And AWACS, the Airborne Warning and Control uh, System, we have some of those on alert as well. So we have a very broad capability through radars, through overhead sensors, through aircraft, et cetera, to be able to provide that surveillance that we need to be able to protect uh, the national airspace of both Canada and the U.S. 24-7-365. Wow. And uh, you mentioned, of course, it's Canada and the U.S. I think that's not necessarily something people always think about, that, that, that we are, it's, it's an integrated partnership in Absolutely. order to project this this whole part of kind of part of the globe where does where's that kind of what if you, where is that region is it all the way around the united states at that point or is it largely focused on that kind of western and northern side yeah so that that's a that's a great point jeff so we have three regions that we have we have one in alaska we have one in canada which is referred to as the canadian norad region so they have fighters and tankers on alert up there. Then we have the CONUS, or the Continental United States NORAD region, where we do the lower 48 states, if you will. Um, and again, we, we surveil and provide protection uh, 24-7, 365 for all of those locations. 
But the other interesting thing about NORAD is a lot of times folks will, will think about us as having an area of responsibility, that, which is confined by space. Mm. Uh, we have an area of operations which allows us to go to where we need to go to ensure mission effectiveness. So we can get outside the confines of even the air defense identification zone, economic exclusion zones, and all of those kind of things. That's where having tankers and AWACS and some of those other kinds of capabilities really helps us. That makes a lot of sense, uh, obviously. Now, um, so when we when you think about that in terms of a lot of, you said the average ways to think about it, of course, would be kind of geographically, but you're thinking about it kind of operationally right. in, in that. Um, at any given time, you're, I would imagine, tracking just a, a huge volume of activity that's outside of, of kind of your protection zone. How do you view kind of zones? You mentioned, you mentioned like the uh, air defense zone, which uh, uh, identification zone, which we can see on charts as pilots. Yeah. Um, what, I guess, are there area ways that you kind of segment what's outside, what's then in a concerning area, and then when something really becomes a, a breach of sovereign airspace? And Yeah. So here in the lower 48, for instance, the continental United States, we actually have a couple of subordinate um, uh, command and control centers called Eastern Air Defense Sector and Western Air Defense Sector, where we have the United States kind of split down where the Mississippi River runs and Eastern Air Defense Sector on the east side, obviously, and Western Air Defense Sector on the western side. But we have those folks that are out there surveilling, not only with the radars that we own, the North Warning System, those radars, but we've incorporated the FAA radar since 9-11. Plus, along the border, we have tethered aerostat radar systems that actually belong to the DHS, Department of Homeland Security now. But we've been able to incorporate all of those sensors and all of those feeds into our picture so that we can command and control our fighters. And typically, we have to, we have to identify about 7,000 aircraft per day that enter the United States proper. And most of the time, that, that's pretty easy because if a guy's on a flight plan and he's squawking his IFF code and all that kind of stuff, we can identify them very easily and very readily. But it's the guys out there that are either on a 1200 code or not squawking, et cetera, that we have to go through a process to be able to identify them and make sure that they're not friend or foe and those kind of things. Mm. That, that, that wow, that's a lot. Seven, over seven thousand per day that you've got to be able to track, and uh, and try to make sure that it, they're all friendly and that you understand that. Yeah. Um, we uh, when you read the news, when you see things, you know, around whether it's you know uh, countries kind of getting close to others, or uh, it's sometimes hard to discern what's kind of just alarmist news versus what's actually it becomes a, a, a very serious threat. Is what tell us a little bit about what the aid is effectively is and what it matters for something to be outside of that versus inside of that yeah. versus over our airspace. Yeah. So we, we have an aid is and the Canadians have a CADIS, a Canadian Air Defense Identification Zone. So if there are aircraft flying in that, we, through our aerospace warning and aerospace control, need to be able to identify friend from foe. And as you're probably aware, and your uh, um, listeners are probably aware, we do have visits every once in a while from uh, 
Russian military aviation that we have to go out and respond to within the air defense identification zone. So we've got a very formal process that we do that and try to identify uh, those particular flights. But again, it goes back to it's just not Russian military aviation. It could be any aviation. You know, we're kind of pivoting now to China as a pacing threat, if you will. So we're paying a little bit more attention to China and some of the things that they're able to uh, bring potentially to our air defense identification zone. So we're paying attention to all those guys. And the bottom line is we need to f- know who's flying in our airspace. Mm-hmm. That makes a, a lot of sense. The, there have been some things recently uh, in the news uh, about, uh, I don't know what the right word is when there has to be an intercept or what, what it is, but can you give us some information like on that and what it means for how close like, for example, a, a Russian military, you know, bomber with escort ha, has come? Sure. You know, uh, they, they typically, they haven't been inside the economic uh, exclusion zone, which is about 12 nautical miles roughly from the landline. So they've never been inside that. Typically, they'll go inside the is and they can come anywhere from 40 to 50 miles within the land structure but they're always going to stay outside of that exclusion zone, which allows them to operate freely. As you know, as a pilot, you can operate freely outside of the economic zone without squawking, without talking and those kinds of things. But it's a matter of just being able to identify them. So we want to go out and make sure we know who's close to our airspace or flying in our aid is. Is, is there kind of, I mean, you've been a pilot uh, with the military. Is there almost an unwritten etiquette to how these things happen so that they don't become international incidents uh, when they're between kind of even hostile countries? Absolutely. We have, you know, kind of rules of the road, if you will, on what the expectations are. So, um, you know, if you want to talk about the Russians and Russian military aviation, we have an agreement with them that says here's how we're going to fly in your airspace so it's non-provocative and we have the ability to de-escalate and if you start getting close to territory for instance if a russian military aircraft had an in-flight emergency and now they needed to land on u.s soil we have a process and procedure that we have in place that allows us to do that and to make sure that they are safely escorted into our airspace uh, and land uh, safely as well. So we, those things are all practiced by our pilots, our uh, guys that sit alert for us. So we're well practiced in those kind of things as well. Oh, I actually didn't know that. That's fascinating because obviously that makes sense. It's quite possible that you could be on, uh, you know, maybe a little bit controversial, but not really meaning to to cause trouble. And and then all of a sudden have an emergency. What do you do then without crossing the line? Absolutely. So, you know, we we practice that amongst ourselves. But when the, the Russians do that again, we we have a procedure in place and an agreement in place with Russia. Canada also has an agreement in place with Russia for their Canadian air defense identification zone. So we're both practiced. Both Canada and the U.S. are well practiced at that. Got it. Um, so for, in, in kind of layman's terms, how is it that that things get escalated in a, in a timely manner to know when something actually is uh, a threat instead of being uh, just a mistake or, or just a kind of, you know, 
a nuisance maybe, but not a, not, you know, staying within the bounds. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And, and, you know, I've been around the NORAD mission and Operation Noble Eagle since the beginning. And on 9-11, on that day, we actually implemented uh, a procedure called the DEN or the Domestic Events Network. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it's an open phone bridge. We've got about 80, 185 mission partners that are on that open phone bridge 24-7, 365 again. So that if there's an event, the first time that folks will start hearing about it will be across that domestic events network. And that allows us to kind of have not only situational awareness, but it allows us to have the information that we need to know whether or not this guy potentially might be nefarious. And typically those guys uh, that have that or manifest that way, if you will, are guys that are in airspace that they shouldn't be in, a, a temporary flight restricted airspace. Um, not squawking, not talking, and doing all the things that, that we typically do as general aviation pilots, et cetera. But then on top of that, we have the ability to stand up what's referred to as an Operation Noble Eagle Conference, where we have all the decision makers and all the information being provided to those decision makers that gives them as much situational awareness as we can about a particular aircraft and helps us tamp down our concerns about those and our intent really is to get them back in communications and 99% of the time it's somebody who didn't read the notams believe it or not um, you got to get out if you're flying general aviation or commercial aviation your job as a pilot is to read the notams to know what airspace is available for you to fly in and that's really one of our biggest areas uh, where we get what we refer to as a TOI, a track of interest, somebody who's entered temporary flight restricted airspace or restricted zones. So we've mentioned it a couple times. Tell me about Operation Noble Eagle. Sure. So Operation Noble Eagle was really invented on 9-11, and it's the response. It kind of started off as the response to an asymmetric threat along the lines of 9-11. But since then, we've been able to uh, intentionally um, morph it toward more of a strategic competitor, i.e. the Russian military aviation uh, threats. So it covers both symmetric and asymmetric threats now. But Operation Noble Eagle is really the umbrella that we use to be able to respond to any kind of airspace event where we are not exactly sure what's going on, where we need to be able to provide an airborne presence uh, to go and investigate, if you will. And you can imagine the best way to do that is actually to put eyes on and eyes in the cockpit uh, to, to be able to, even if you're not up on the same frequency, you can get eye contact with somebody and kind of give them the old head nod, come up this frequency, et cetera. Uh, and that's really one of our strong suits is being able to go out and intercept and be able to provide that information. Right. And, and I know, uh, you know, NORAD has had a presence at, at some of the large general aviation events, such as Air Venture and Sun and Fun, to try to educate pilots about what happens in, in this. How do you how do you be a essentially a good participant of an intercept? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so we do go to all of those locations. We're getting back into the swing of things. This is going to be the first time this year that we've done it since COVID. Uh, so COVID kind of prevented us to going to uh, places like Oshkosh and we'll go and actually set up a booth 
and we'll have handouts and flyers that say, hey, if you get intercepted by a NORAD fighter, here's what you should expect and here's what you should do. So it's a great outreach program to the local community. On top of that, whenever, for instance, we um, have a TFR, the Temporary Flight Restricted Airspace, for a national special security event, for instance, uh, the Super Bowl or the State of the Union address, or if the president is traveling and we set up that 30 nautical mile TFR around him, we actually do outreach to all of the fixed-based operators and all the general aviation with typically within about 500 nautical miles of wow. the location where the TFR is going to be centered. And we do outreach. Not only that is we work with the FAA. And have you heard of SPANS before? Mm -hmm. Special notices um, to airmen. So the FAA works with us and we'll send out SPANS to all of the uh, general aviation pilots within about 500 miles of those TFRs as well. Wow. So, you know, it's interesting because I think the, the typical mission that people think about with NORAD, of course, is, is you know, boundary-wise outside the continental United States, but internal TFRs are coordinated through NORAD. Absolutely. Yeah. So FAA is obviously responsible for establishing the TFR, but we're responsible for kind of reinforcing the TFR and making sure that if there is somebody in there that doesn't have the authority uh, to be in there, then obviously we'll go out and investigate them and, and make sure that they don't have nefarious intent and, and go through a process to be able to figure out whether or not we think they may have nefarious intent. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, you hear about it a lot in terms, in the GA world, in terms of accidental things where people don't research NOTAMs, don't research TFRs, and then kind of wander in there in a relatively slow aircraft uh, and, and can be kind of intercepted. How does something like this um, work for essentially in a scenario that isn't like the 99.999% case where it is something that's faster and does have nefarious intent. Yep. So one thing, let me touch on real quick. So yeah, as an F-16 guy, the slowest I can get comfortably in an F-16 with the configuration I have is probably in the neighborhood of 170 to 180 knots. So you can imagine if I'm ex, uh, intercepting a, a TOI, a track of interest that's going 120 knots, I'm kind of a high-speed cheerleader, but I'm trying to go by here and get his tail number, get his attention to make sure that I can get him to come up on a common frequency, be it Unicom, be it 121.5, or whatever the case may be. But we go out, and we're going to intercept that track. Now, the other great thing is we have the ability to have low throat, excuse me, low slow threat response as well via U.S. Coast Guard helicopters that are assigned to us. So obviously they can go up to about 140 knots. So we can do the low slow with them and we can still with our fighters be in position to be able to respond as needed as well. But ultimately our job is to identify who they are and try and get them up on frequency to uh, de-escalate as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Does, does you mentioned, you know, on ready alert and things, if we look at things like the borders uh, and, and outside is, I mean, are there resources that are essentially deployed so that the, the you know, major cities along the coast, et cetera, can be protected against something? Because, I mean, the first thing that occurs to me is just, boy, that, 
that you're saying that it's okay within to be, as long as you're 12 miles off the coast, you've got, you know, uh, sorties happening out there that don't turn into the economic uh, area. But that seems like a very small distance if someone decided all of a sudden they actually did have ill intent. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have, you know, I mentioned those fighters in, in the in the lower 48 down here. They're either F-15s or F-16s. We're just starting to incorporate F-35s mm-hmm. into our um, uh, mission set as well. But we have those assigned at various locations around the United States, and I won't go into the exact number and the exact locations, but but we have them at uh, locations that can be able to respond very, very quickly. In fact, the response times that we have are actually very, very quick to be able to get a fighter or two fighters airborne to be able to go out and respond. So we've got a good array of aircraft designed to go out and respond to all of those kinds of events. Mm. We, we hear a lot also, of course, recently with uh, both uh, developments uh, in, in, especially in, in Russia with hypersonic technology and missions that, uh, and uh, missiles uh, being used out there. And then more recently in the news that um, testing is coming along for the United States to have that, those types of assets. Does NORAD coordinate with, with space as well? And how does something, things that travel that fast, uh, work with the systems that you've created or processes that you've created? Yep. So that's a great question, Jeff. And, and, you know, I kind of mentioned the fact that we not only do the asymmetric response, but we're responsible for the symmetric response as well. And that that includes cruise missiles. So we have to have the capability to respond to cruise missiles. Now we're in the kind of the nascent stages of being able to figure out how to respond to hypersonic glide vehicles and all of those kinds of things. Um, But the same aircraft and systems that we have for that alert for the asymmetric response would be used for a symmetric response. Now, specifically, Remember, I talked about that ITWA, that integrated tactical warning and attack assessment. So we can track those um, hypersonic glide vehicles and those kinds of events, missile events, through our ITWA systems as well. So we know where they're going to be so we can respond to them as well. Again, we're kind of, like I said, we're in the nascent stages of being able to do that. And that's an exponential jump in capability just to compare to a conventional cruise missile that we know is going to come in from a low altitude, you know, approximately four to 500 um, feet AGL, below a thousand feet AGL and about four or 500 knots. Um, But all of those things, we update our tactics, techniques, and procedures all the time to make sure that we can account for those kind of threats. Right. I mean, in, in gen, in, again, in general terms, not, not asking anything specific, but it, one of the things that I've always been curious about is in some ways, as you mentioned, there's the speed of the actual threat itself being yep. the threat, uh, uh, whether a hypersonic or ICBM or something like that. But in a more general sense, one thing I've always been curious about is how do you overcome the roadblock being the speed of decision making, not yep. the speed of the the object or the aircraft being the threat, but actually getting narrowing that time frame of deciding to actually take action. How does yep. that? How does? How can that possibly happen? 
Yeah. So for, for those kind of vehicles, it's obviously a little bit more difficult um, for conventional general aviation and even commercial aviation where we got tracks that are flying four and 500 knots true airspeed. We have this thing called time to decide which gives our engagement authorities a specific time where we need to be able to make a decision. Otherwise, we may not have a successful outcome to the mission. So when you start talking about hypersonic vehicles, that just decreases your decision space significantly. So the further out we can detect those kinds of systems uh, is really imperative. And we're, like I said, we're really in the nascent stages of trying to figure out exactly how to respond to them and who has what responsibility and who has the authority to respond, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Is it just that there's uh, protocols essentially in place or do you still have to wait for a bunch of groups to kind of decide together to do something? No. So uh, I mentioned that Operation Noble Legal Conference where we have all the decision makers on the conference. That time to decide is something that they're monitoring the entire time the enterprise, not only from the domestic events network, but from the Operation Noble Legal Conference, we have uh, folks from the sector, uh, from those guys that are actually doing the command and control of the fighter aircraft are telling us exactly what they're seeing and giving us all the time that we need to be able to make decisions. And obviously, again, the faster tracks fly and the less decision time that we have. But the bottom line is we have a process through the Operation Noble Eagle Conference to be able to discuss all the things why we may think this particular aircraft, be it a, a cruise missile or be it a general aviation or a commercial aviation, why we think that may be a threat to us. And we practice that regularly. Um, in fact, the entire enterprise, and this might be a good point to talk about the interagency that's out there supporting us in this as well. So obviously the FAA is very important to it, but we have mission partners like FBI and CIA and TSA and all the interagency folks are on this same conference providing us information that they know about this particular track to try and characterize whether or not it might have hostile intent. Wow. And, and it also, as you mentioned, even includes maritime. Um, does, does it, I mean, does it integrate directly with things like even uh, uh, when the DA or anything is looking at potential drug trafficking coming in, anything else that's essentially also unidentified and or trying to come in? You hit the, you hit the key word there is when something is unidentified, we refer to it as an unknown. So we have that time to be able to figure out who it is. And if we can't do that uh, with the sensors and systems that we have, that's when we typically will respond with fighter aircraft to go intercept and figure out exactly who he is, what, what he's doing, where he's going, those kind of things, and then characterize that event across the operation of a legal conference. Right. So the old days of, of this idea from maybe older movies or something that people try to like, you know, run drugs into the country or do other things nefariously, uh, you know, coming in low. So right. Those days are gone. Cause now it's not just does a coast guard aircraft somehow get you now they're in the net of everyone on this, uh, operation noble Eagle and this just chat all communicating once. So once they've been identified. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately one of the other areas that we, that we, uh, get some business on, so to speak, 
are what we refer to as derelict objects. If you think about the Payne Stewart incident, where we have an aircraft where either um, the pilot or crew has had some kind of physiological event so that nobody is flying the airplane again. And we typically average a couple of those per year where we track down um, a TOI where the pilot has had a physiological event, be it hypoxia, be it a heart attack or whatever. And sometimes we chase those guys literally for four or five hours um, to try and understand exactly where they're flying to and try and get them to become responsive, uh, et cetera. But unfortunately, that's one of the areas that, that we get some uh, business on as well. Wow. I had no idea that I, I thought that was a, you know, once in a decade, once in a generation kind of kind of thing, what ha- you know, what happened with them. But you you see that up to twice a year. In fact, uh, year before last, we actually had two in one week where both the pilots were deceased at the flight controls, and we basically chased the aircraft until it ran out of fuel. And now, obviously, we can mark and call the Coast Guard in. In fact, one of these was out in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. The other was off the East Coast. But uh, they happen more frequently than you think. The great thing is, is with the advent of technology, we've got some aircraft that that are out there now that have the ability to either deploy a parachute or if they see no control inputs, there's actually systems that can take over the aircraft and take it back to a safe landing at the closest airport. Yeah, it's amazing that that uh, that that some of those technologies now exist with whether it be the Cirrus aircraft or the shoots or or some yep. of the other ones with self landing. It's 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 pretty impressive. Um, you know, another thing that comes up is is in previous uh, years, especially I believe it was last year, there was a, an operation of of military exercises that were happening at the time. I think it was it perhaps Nanook. There was. Um, the ones right. that have happened in previous years that seem to be a great opportunity to kind of where everyone, including adversaries are all watching and kind of practicing. How do you, how do you do all this during an exercise? Um, was that the last exercise that happened or how does it work when the, there are uh, intentional coordinated military exercises? No, we do. We do exercises on a regular basis. In fact, we probably, First of all, all of our fighters and uh, rotary wing aircraft that we have do what we refer to as practice scrambles on a regular basis just to go through the standard operating procedures to make sure the enterprise is primed and ready to respond. We have live fly exercises. In fact, in the national capital region, we have this exercise called a Falcon Virgo at least once a month where we fly in the national capital region with live fly and we'll, we'll have um, fighter response and uh, rotary wing response to tracks of interest. And typically they're um, either civil air patrol aircraft or just some other uh, aircraft that we've got that are working for us so that we can uh, make sure that we exercise uh, the enterprise. But we do that on a regular basis. At least once a month, we have live fly exercises. Wow, that's, uh, that's really good to know. Um, you know, another thing that comes to, to mind, last last week we talked um, on the show about safety and, and some of the decisions that pilots make uh, when they're uh, when they are faced with difficult choices and they are more worried about getting in trouble 
by going into restricted airspace or something like that, then maybe avoiding severe weather or dealing with a fuel emergency or some other emergency on the aircraft. Um, can you tell me a little bit about if, uh, if it's not an accidental situation, if someone's talking to ATC or, or, or could be, um, and they feel that the only safe thing to do is to violate either prohibited, restricted, or TFR uh, uh, airspace. Um, what what's the reality of dealing with something like that in an emergency? So, so here's what I would recommend, Jeff, for for the GA pilots out there. If you find yourself in a situation like that, if you're not already communicating with ATC, call ATC immediately and say, "Hey, I need to go from point A to point B." And I know that there's restricted airspace or a TFR in there. I'm squawking this code. I'm at this altitude. So what we want them to do is just communicate exactly what's going on to ATC. That information will get to FAA, to the appropriate folks that are helping us monitor a TFR or restricted airspace. We'll get that information. We'll take that into account. If we can identify uh, a person based on what they're telling us, that certainly helps us be able to kind of tamp down our response. The other thing obviously they can do is that anybody can squawk 7,700 and that's going to send off bells and whistles for uh, any aircraft. So if we have an aircraft that we see that's got an in-flight emergency going through the airspace, yeah, we'll still respond, but it certainly gives us the advantage of knowing this guy is in distress and doesn't necessarily want to be here. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- should a pilot, to what degree should a pilot be worried or factoring that? I guess what, what we're kind of hoping to do is to try to, to sideline the fear yeah. of getting in trouble and prioritize the safety of the flight. Yeah. Um, how would you, any words that you can kind of communicate on how people should think about it if, if really the safe thing to do is yep. to land somewhere you're not supposed to or or via, go into airspace you're not supposed to, but yep. you are communicating, as you mentioned, you are talking to ATC? Uh, here's the bottom line. For us, when we hear an aircraft that is in inside either restricted airspace or a TFR is communicating to ATC, we may or may not even go out and intercept that aircraft because we've got a, a – a, a great deal of confidence that the guy is compliant with ATC procedures. So that's one of our um, ways that we can determine or help us assess intent of an aircraft is whether or not he's compliant with ATC and whether or not he's talking, whether or not he's squawking, et cetera, et cetera. So the bottom line is FAA is responsible for meeting out, um, uh, you know, taking away guys license. <laughs> We're going to respond accordingly, but it's up to them. But I guarantee you, and I've been doing this a long time, I guarantee you, if you're communicating the issue that you're having with your aircraft and you're showing every intent to be compliant with that, but you can't do it because of an IFE, in-flight emergency, or a thunderstorm sitting over the top of your destination, et cetera, et cetera, we'll make accommodations to make sure that we can account for a track of interest like that. Mm-hmm. Got it. What 
you you've, you mentioned in the beginning you've you've been in this role for a very long time and and seen I think a lot of change I would expect during that time uh, and for the better. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen that have improved the national security and the way that things work for our yeah. country? Well, to be honest with you, um, I think the best thing that we've done since 9-11 is that domestic events network where we've got that 24-7 phone bridge with FAA and all the major airlines are on there. Uh, all the law enforcement agencies are on there. So we'll know exactly what's going on uh, from that. I shouldn't say exactly. We'll know to a large degree what's going on through the den. Uh, some of the other things that we've done uh, since then is this Operation Noble Legal Conference, where we get decision makers on a conference and we talk through exactly what's going on. So we, we've got another tool that we have in our, in our tool bag, if you will, that's called AEISS, Air Event Information Sharing uh, Service, which is really a common operating picture. So if I've got uh, an aircraft that I don't know who it is and I convene an Operation Noble Legal Conference, I've got uh, this AEISS common operating picture called up and all of the folks that are on the Operation Noble Legal Conference are looking at hearing and seeing the same information. That is a great thing. So I don't have to go, hey, what did he say? Or what did she say? What's he doing? Everybody's on the same uh, conference. Everybody's looking at the same information, which really, really helps us. Wow. And and that's fascinating. And and the DEN must have enormous number of people that are actually on there if all the different airlines are represented. How, how do it how does that actually work from a functional standpoint? Are they all trained to know when to talk and when not? Yeah, so um, I shouldn't infer that all the airlines, we do have some of the major carriers that are on there. Uh, like I said, we typically have about 185 mission partners that are on the domestic events network at any given time. Some of the, um, the air carriers, I've been out to American Airlines and I've been to United. I've been to a bunch of them to kind of educate them on the process. Uh, and to work with their operations center to know if, for whatever reason, a um, commercial aircraft has somebody on there that's acting strangely, and you can declare um, a, um, a level one, two, or three in-flight disturbance, then they know what the response is going to be to those kinds of things. So it's just a matter of educating folks. So that, that's fascinating because that brings up even another way that I hadn't thought of, you know, NOR, NORAD communication happening through uh, Operation Noble Eagle and the DEN, and that is passenger behavior. And yep. so, that, so that goes through, you know, the channels at the, uh, at the airline and um, uh, flight control uh, there and then, and then through the network if it's a major airline. Absolutely. So in the commercial aviation world, we have a level one through four disturbance that the pilot in command can characterize what's going on in the back of the airplane so that he can say, hey, I've got a level four disturbance, which basically means somebody's attempting to uh, to breach the cockpit. Um, so it gives us the ability to respond as long as we know the cockpit has not been breached. 
and it's pretty tough to breach these now. That's one of the other things that's been done since then. Reinforced cockpit doors have been very helpful to to make sure that folks have a very, very, very difficult time um, uh, hijacking an aircraft. But we have a, a methodology in place with even commercial carriers to give us information on what's going on inside their aircraft. If all of a sudden they turn off from their um, flight route and they say, I've got a level three disturbance on board, then we can start talking to the appropriate folks to get the information that we need to be able to respond accordingly. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I have a, a just a, a few uh, images before we get to the uh, some of the other fun stuff that, that is going on there, of course, with the holiday season. And uh, uh, I just think it's nice to share with people. This, uh, I believe, is is from, well, you tell me. <laughs> well, that is actually inside our command center. Um, and, you know, every year, you know, once a year on the 24th of December, we get to the point that we get to track Santa. One of the fun things that we get to do here, in addition to our normal 24 seven, 365 and making sure we know who's flying in the airspace. We get to track Santa and know exactly where Santa is through all those sensors and capabilities that we have. And we track Santa. We've been doing it for 67 years. We take a whole bunch of phone calls. It takes about 1500 people to be able to man these centers, to answer phone calls. You can go on uh, the web. You can call us on phone lines during, um, uh, December 24th, and it's just a great way for us to be able to talk about our mission capabilities and really get in touch with um, the community to help them understand NORAD, but it's also a great way to, to make sure that folks understand and know that we can do other things, uh, to include tracking Santa. Absolutely, and I, you know, I didn't even know this before I went and and checked it out for myself. So there's there's a lot of folks in our audience that have either kids or grandkids, and it's it's a pretty fun website that you guys have. You yeah. do, dude, it's really worth visiting. I would tell people go out there. I don't care whether you're a kid that's you know ten, six, or sixty six. It is worth checking out the NORAD tracking Santa website. Yeah, it's a great time. In fact, my kids come over every Christmas Eve. My grandkids, I should say, come over every Christmas Eve and we'll call and we'll get online and we'll, you know, there's some interactive games and everything on the website. So as you said, Jeff, it's a great way to kind of get the, the kids and uh, grandkids and folks involved. Oh, by the way, I would mention the fact that, you know, we have the ability to speak eight different languages to folks that call in. So we get calls literally from all over the world asking, where is Santa? When's he going to be in my town? Really? I had no idea about that. Absolutely. Huh. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> well, I knew it's a great thing. I just wanted to, to make sure that we, uh, that we do that. And again, there's a, uh, that image up again of the, the folks that, that work it, um, and a shout out to the people that actually staff and do that. Who, who does staff the entire center? Uh, I tell you what, you know, that is a group of volunteers. And like I said, it's typically, it takes about 1500 people to do it. Now during COVID, we were down to five, about 500, a little over 500 people that were doing it, but they'll sit shifts and they'll answer phone calls and they could answer them uh, forever. And we even have our four-star commander that will go and spend a couple hours 
listening and answering phone calls and talking to people. Um, but it's a great way for not only our folks here, we get volunteers that actually work here at the headquarters at NORAD and U.S. Northcom, but we get spouses and other family members to come in and join in. It's a great time for us as well as it is for the folks that are actually calling in. Wow. Well, that's just fantastic. And um, again, I, I, I just want to thank everyone at NORAD, not just for, for coming on here and, and spending your time and, and you for spending your time uh, with us, but, but for the work you do to defend and, uh, our nation and, and keep us all safe. It's with, with the idea that you said of 7,000 things that you've got to track, yeah. uh, that's remarkable. And, and the idea that any one of them could be a, a threat very quickly uh, and, and that you're able to respond in such a, a rapid manner is is truly unbelievable. And and I also want to say that I, I've I've always been able to deal with people through NORAD that were both Canadian uh, military as as well as American military, and it seems like a a really unique kind of joint venture in this regard that keeps the two countries very very close. It does. Absolutely. Like I said, we've been doing this for about almost 65 years, uh, but as a binational command with Canada, uh, and it's drawn us very, very close. We have the ability to respond not only from NORAD, but obviously we have other mission sharing things that we do with Canada as well. And it's really all about the protection of North America. Yeah, it's very it's it's a very unique setup because there's we hear so many different things in the news of terms of how countries uh, form alliances whether you know NATO which I don't believe Canada is actually in but NORAD that right. they actually we work very very closely for joint defense with absolutely well again stretch thank you so much for taking time to join us here on on social flight live uh, uh, thank you so much to your team there uh, and, and everyone who made uh, this evening's event possible. And I hope that everyone goes out there and checks out the Santa Tracker on uh, NORAD's website. Can you just give that website for them to check out? Oh, or is it, or is it just, I think just doing a search on, I think when yeah. I did it, just a search on NORAD, N-O-R-A-D, just yep. brings it right up. Yep, it does. And and if you type in to Google or any browser, NORAD Track Santa, it'll get you there. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much. I wish you a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, and uh, and hope that uh, all of uh, you and yours remain uh, safe and have a great holiday. Okay. Thanks so much, Jeff. Have a great night. Thanks, Stretch. And to all of you, thank you again for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday evening with actor and pilot Treat Williams. He is uh, just a wonderful, wonderful human being, a close friend of mine and and uh, someone that just can, can talk hangar flying uh, until the cows come home. And we're going to have some great stories from Treat talk about lots and lots of flying. It's it just, uh, I, you definitely want to show up for that evening. <laughs> so be sure to be there next Tuesday night at 8 p.m. with Treat Williams. And on Tuesday, December 27th, we have a very special holiday treat for you. And that is Robert Hayes, Captain Ted Stryker from Airplane the Movie, will be joining us here on Social Flight Live. 
Again, one last thing, be sure to go out there. If you at all are interested in the globe that we have of the Mustang, all you have to do is send an email to info, I-N-F-O, info at socialflight.com, and we'll be sure to get you some information on doing that. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies. 